Hello and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, Cosmo Macero and I are back talking business and news on 321 Go. And a panel of a few of our own in-house crisis communications experts will be talking about managing media in times of crisis. And in two minutes with Tom, we're joined by former governor of Maryland and recent recipient of the Tip O'Neill Irish Diaspora Award, Martin O'Malley. First up, three, two, one, go. Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321 Go On, OA On Air, where each week we take a brief but purposeful look at three important topics in the world of public affairs, business, government, culture, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go, is the new Massachusetts miracle more like a mirage? The middle class is actually taking a beating in the Bay State. This and other troubling findings come from the U.S. Census Department, we'll explain. And can the Patriot Way help cure addiction? Or at least slow down and delay its impact on newly acquired Pats wide receiver Josh Gordon long enough to get his NFL career back on track? This could become a story of redemption based on the number of receptions Gordon can make. Finally, September 20th is the 50th anniversary of Hawaii Five-0, the iconic TV drama with the greatest theme song in the history of everything ever. Yes, there's a modern-day remake or reimagination of the 5-0 franchise, but nobody cares. We'll discuss. Joining me here on 321 Go is Cayenne Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA on air. Cayenne, how are you today? Good. How are you? Very good. Thank you. I have a case of the giggles, I think. Let's let's get started. (laughs) What do you think of when someone talks about the Massachusetts economy? I bet you think about low unemployment and a sizzling real estate market and some of the highest incomes in the nation, right? Fair enough, but a new survey by the U.S. Census Bureau uh, shows that the economy in Massachusetts is not really as strong as you might imagine. In fact, this state trailed the rest of the nation in 2017. Cayenne, when it comes to middle-class income growth, poverty reduction, and the expansion of health insurance coverage. Um, you like how I say your name like that? Like I'm making sure you're paying attention like you're you sitting do. in the back of the classroom? Like there's anywhere else I would be. <laughs> um, nonetheless, that's the case. Uh, and then here's the most glaring gap. Households in the middle of the Massachusetts income ladder, literally the actual middle class, saw their incomes rise less than 1% in 2017 to about $77,000 um, annually. Uh, median income households around the country saw their earnings increase almost three times that. That's the third straight year of nationwide gains. What the heck is going on? What do you think? I I was surprised, actually mostly by the health insurance. Um, you know, I think Massachusetts really did lead the nation on health insurance coverage, still does. Uh, but to see even a little bit of a growth in those that don't have coverage, I don't think that the middle class issue is new. Um, we've long known that, particularly if you look around the city of Boston, the Commonwealth as a whole. There's a lack of housing options for people in the middle class. These are not sort of new ideas, but this sort of puts it in black and white, which I think hopefully will help push some things maybe in the right direction and start some conversations. When the Census Department says that you're trailing the nation, 
I think you got to perk up and listen. I think you're right. And it's clear from the data, but you, and you're right. I think this is something that's been clear that we've been experiencing. Um, different people are, are experiencing the Massachusetts economy very, very differently. And, and there's this category of, of household with, you know, the suburban home in a nice community outside of the city that, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago was something easily obtainable with a decade's worth of hard work and advancement. And now it's becoming, it's becoming more and more out of reach for so many people. And those homes, which were attainable, are now priced ridiculously. Um, which we talked about, actually, we, on a couple of recent editions of OA on Air. Is that but this, this is hard data that yeah. incomes just can't keep up, and that's a real problem. It, it's concerning, um, but to your point, it really does get to this idea of different different classes and different categories of people are feeling things differently. And that's not just in Massachusetts. That is, I think, around the country. We have a um, our most recent presidential election, I think, really put a spotlight on that. Uh, but because Massachusetts is doing so well in so many areas, it's really easy for us to say we're doing great, we're doing great. But it's time maybe we, we pay attention to some areas that maybe we have ignored for a little while. You mentioned healthcare. I want to revisit it just briefly, but it, it, it's important. This is traditionally and and still is the state with the lowest percentage of uninsured residents in the nation, which is a good, which is a really good thing. But we took a little bit of a step backwards, and mm-hmm. that's a problem. Is that the beginning of a trend? Is it is it an anomaly or a fluke? Um, it, it's certainly not the not the kind of feature of our economic experience that uh, that Massachusetts, you know, is expecting. I think I do think a little bit there that and they, the Globe story talks about this uh, that we're kind of talking about is that one year is not necessarily an indication of what's actually happening. So we're going to have to keep an eye on it. And I, my my guess is that's what a lot of our lawmakers will say too. Is that this is a quick quick glance. Um, let's see what the years to come show. Makes sense. Okay. It may, it may not be a mirage, but uh, definitely some non-miraculous features to the Massachusetts economy. All right. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money, you can make a splash. All right, the New England Patriots recently acquired Josh Gordon after he was released from the Cleveland Browns. Gordon is a tremendous talent who's had a real troubled career in the NFL, uh, primarily because of his long-term, ongoing battle with addiction, drugs, alcohol. Um, and, and just to kind of compress into a, into a couple of lines uh, what, what the issues have been, you know, when you think of NFL players that have that – have, off the field issues, you think of someone who's in all kinds of trouble and, you know, maybe trouble with the law or crime or abuse or whatever. And all reports are that this is an otherwise really good teammate, a great, great potential player, could be a great teammate, just cannot, um, cannot get past his addiction. And it's, it's, it's tragic. It has really hampered his career. Um, and it's not to say he hasn't tried. It, it, that's absolutely that's absolutely correct. He's he's done a lot of things uh, and, and been through a lot of programs. Um, 
and and finally the Cleveland Browns, a franchise which is, you know, if the New England Patriots personify or or, or illustrate success and best practices, the Cleveland Browns are the opposite. They're probably the worst run franchise in the NFL. Nonetheless, they released uh, Gordon after having to just sort of give up that that they felt he, he's no, there's no way he's going to come back from this. And, of course, the New England Patriots looking for the value and needing a receiver. They've been through about 20 different uh, uh, transactions trying to improve their receiving core. They pick them up. Um, And it's, you know, it has dominated sports radio over the past uh, number of days. Um, But there's a real question here um, that I sort of alluded to in the opening, uh, maybe in, in too much of a joking way because it's not a joking matter. Can... Can one more opportunity with a franchise that is known to not not be afraid to to to, to uh, um, launch a reclamation project or a rehabilitation project? Is that enough for someone to overcome real addiction, where uh, at every turn in his life and career he has been un- unable to do so? It's an excellent question. We don't know the answer yet, but yeah. I think it does speak to. Bill Belichick, the Patriots, the you know the Crafts have an open mindedness to take a risk where they see a potential gain, and they are uniquely suited to do so. Um, you know, I think there's something to be said about the level at which the Patriots play, the level at which they operate, and if you know, I know a lot of the country hates hates Patriots fan and hates the Patriots as a team, but if you don't and you can respect what they are as a business and a team, they are perhaps the the gold standard. Um, maybe you do elevate yourself in a whole new way when given that opportunity. Yeah. I don't know. For me, what it, it sort of makes me think is that that's sort of the reputation that they've developed, that they have sort of become this organization that can do what n- perhaps others can't do. Yeah, it's a great point. You know, <clears throat> I, I, be- from, and, and I believe pretty strongly that <clears throat> um, if, if, Josh, if Josh Gordon is going to overcome or at least control uh, these issues, it, it's going to be because of Josh Gordon. It's going to be his decision. It's going to be his actions. It's going to be his commitment. This opportunity is a great catalyst for that, but mm-hmm. it's all going to be on him. And if he's successful, it's his success. With that said, if he's able to turn his career and his life into a different trajectory, um, it probably only adds to the reputation and the mystique of, of, of the New England Patriots and the Patriot way, even though I, I don't think you could ever credit no. Uh, uh, you know, a, a football program with turning around someone's life at that advanced stage. You know, maybe maybe when someone's a kid or a teenager, um, but I I think it only adds to that. And and uh, and honestly, I can't think of anyone who's rooting against this guy. No. And rooting against uh, maybe for selfish reasons because they want the Patriots to to be successful, but um, it makes you want it makes you want the guy to succeed for sure. And hey, having um, having Bill Belichick and, and the Patriots organization behind you and believing you certainly can't hurt. Um, but to your point, it won't be because of the Patriots. Yeah, but it's a great opportunity he has, and uh, yeah, and and absolute out. best wishes and good luck to him. Yeah.
All right. Come on and get ready. I mean, really ready. Are you ready for the football? A Monday night party. Okay, Hawaii Five O turns fifty on September twentieth. Five O. That's right. Five O is five O. Um, the original CBS television drama um, that was set, I believe, in Honolulu um, was a classic. Now, it's 50 years old. That means I'm actually a little bit older than Hawaii Five-0. Um, and, and I got to say, there's probably an entire category of millennials and maybe even Gen Y and some Gen X. I'm at the very t- uh, early end of Gen X, but... Who, who never really experienced the show at all. Um, even I was a kid watching it, right? But it was a great show. Um, you had McGarrett, who ran the unit. And you had Dano, his uh, sidekick. And at the end of every show, when they arrested the bad guy, it was... Book him, Dano. Is that oh. where that comes from? Oh, yeah, that's where that comes from. Okay, so I know the song, and I know Book him, Dano. Book him, Dano. And that's about it. Yeah. Um, of course, it's been... Um, reimagined and remade by CBS Modern Day, and, and I think it's cool to do that. I, I, I don't think that it's uh, anything to match the mystique and uh, excitement of the original. But even if you never saw the show, like our producer Brooke and like you, Cayenne, mm-hmm. you know the theme, right? You know the theme from Hawaii Five-0. Uh, yes, actually, for everyone out there in OA on Airland, we listen to the theme song quite on quite quite frequently yeah. in this studio, um, just for fun, you know. And uh, never seen one episode. I don't think I, I know Brooke hasn't, um, but it's so iconic. It is that it's, beat is so iconic. It's terrific. It's classic surf music, and and of course, it was a song. Created and written by The Ventures, a classic surf band. little trivia here, an important trivia. So The Ventures, they, they write the song. Um, they, they experience all the royalties from it. But in the studio, almost the just about every bit of the song is recorded by top flight uh, Los Angeles studio musicians. They were actually called The Wrecking Crew. It was a group of about 20 high-level studio musicians in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, that played on everything from the Ventures and the Beach Boys to just about every pop song you can imagine from those eras, because very often you'd have you'd have a group come up with a great tune, a great song, and and you go to a recording studio and they're like, we have a great song, and 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 the engineers and the record company says this is a great song, but you guys are terrible musicians, you, you know. <laughs> so they they bring in the wrecking crew. Now they just bring in a computer. Now, now that's right. Now they bring in Pro Tools, the computerized software but uh, they bring in these studio musicians to actually execute in perfect to perfection on the record nonetheless um the 5-0 theme is iconic and um it's 50 years old and the show is 50 years old and uh and the song is go. standing the test of time oh absolutely absolutely huh i learned something new today all right hey that's gonna do it for three two one go on oa on air cayenne had some fun this week Always a pleasure, Cosmo. Always a pleasure. 321 Go was recorded in Studio 10A, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room at our building in the heart of Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero.
Up next, we're talking crisis communications with our O'Neill & Associates team. In light of some recent events here in Massachusetts and around the country within the last week, we thought it was a good time to talk about crisis communications and how businesses and organizations can handle them when they arise. We happen to have a great team of experts and professionals here at O'Neill & Associates, and I'm currently joined by two of them, Associate Jeremy Crockford and Senior Vice President Hugh Drummond, both of whom have extensive background and expertise managing crisis communications. Jeremy's background includes time at Massport and that little project everyone in Boston knows so much about, the Big Dig, and Hugh was formerly at the American Red Cross covering crises and disasters. As for myself, I spent four years at the Department of Children and Families, an agency tasked with caring for thousands of children in Massachusetts and unfortunately has led to some tragic events and crisis situations. So thanks for joining me. Let's jump right to it. Jeremy? Yeah, I mean, you had the Merrimack Valley explosion, which obviously, and I, I don't think I'm casting aspersions on anybody here because this has been a national topic of conversation. The response in the first 48 hours, which, as both these guys can tell you, is the crucial period when you set the template for how you did in responding to a crisis, they did not do well. And that has a lasting effect because reporters, people in the governor's office, legislators, but most of all, people who live in the vicinity of the tragedy lose confidence. They lose confidence that, that you are effective, efficient, that you can get your hands around the problem. And that lasts a long time. The first couple of days are crucial. I, I couldn't agree more. The um, And there's, you know, we we saw the the gas explosion in the Merrimack Valley, but it comes on the heels or simultaneous with with the uh, Hurricane Florence in in the southeast. And unlike the gas explosion, hurricanes are known. They we know they're coming. You know that you have time to plan for them. Um, they come every year. Um, yet at the same time, it's it's the same type of uh, uh, response that's needed. Those first couple of days after that storm has cleared. It's, uh, it's crucial to respond effectively, efficiently, and compassionately. And I would say the one thing that helps you in the first 48 hours, whether you're a small company, whether you're a big airport like Logan, whether you're a huge gas company like, uh, Mer like the one that was in the Merrimack Valley, have a plan. Have a plan ready. You should have a plan now for something going wrong. I can't tell you how many prep schools, hospitals, colleges, nonprofits didn't expect anything to go wrong. When it does, a bunch of people gather in a room and say, what are we supposed to do? Um, firms like ours put together plans. It needs to be a usable plan. It can't be a doorstop. The one at Logan Airport was 700 pages long. I don't think anybody opened it when there was a problem. You need a plan that actually gives you step by step what to do, whether it's get the lawyers on the phone, brief people that the media may be coming and here's what they can say and not say, determine who can talk and when, immediately monitor social media. And I think that's something Cayenne can address about how that's changed what you do in those first hours. Well, and I think backing up a little bit before we even dive into social media, the plan is important, but knowing who's supposed to be in the room when that crisis occurs um, and how to get in touch with those people, it's one of those things we don't think about. But do you have everyone's cell phone number and a backup number? And, and who is the list that has to be on hand? Um, 
the last thing you want is to be making those very sort of simple but crucial decisions after things have already gone awry, so to speak. Um, and that's that's all part of the plan. But there are there are things that we all sort of take for granted or we think like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, do you have a list with everyone's cell phone number? Do you have a list of the people that need to come in if it's two in the morning on a Sunday night? Right. And it needs to be a small list and they need to know that they're on it. We have a client that's perpetually in in some sort of conflict or crisis. They have a list of four people. And in their case, it happens to be legal, police, outside consultant, and somebody who has their hands around the day-to-day operation of the facility, a chief of staff. They need to know that they're getting called and that they need to be either on the phone or in the office. And the reason is why I'm just going to point to Merrimack Valley again. Columbia didn't have a statement out for hours. And even if your statement in the wake of a crisis says, we're trying to figure out what happened, but we are trying to figure it out and we're going to get back to you when we know, that's a hell of a lot better than leaving reporters, families and political leaders with no communication at all. I couldn't agree more. The the um, the one thing that I think we encounter a lot of um, is that the the companies, organizations that that even have plans, they look to make something as comprehensive and po- as possible rather than something as realistic as possible, like a and checklist. Exactly, and often. Um, people by default of their title or position in an organization assume roles in these plans. And the reality is a a person in a plan should really be there because of their knowledge or their skill set, not necessarily because of their title. And um, I think that's just a really important kind of reality check as uh, that we go through as we work with clients and, and developing plans. Yeah, and to Jeremy's earlier point, how social media plays into that. And for a situation like like the Merrimack Valley, a simple tweet of saying we're working on it and we're looking into it, we don't want to say anything until we actually know, you know what, what we're dealing with, that goes a long way in sort of people feeling like you're not hiding somewhere. The advent of social media and the power of it as a communications tool I don't think is ever as important as it is in a crisis. You know, I I look back on the marathon bombings. That that was the way people were letting others know that they were safe. Um, That's the way information was getting out there when news reporters couldn't get to the scene. Um, Twitter, Facebook, you know, Instagram, whatever it is, they are developing their own story in and of themselves just from citizens. And if you're not sort of paying attention to that and realizing what's being shown while you're possibly saying we can't comment or we can't talk about that, others might be. Uh, and monitoring that in real time throughout the entire, you know, as the situation unravels is incredibly important and often overlooked, unfortunately. Yeah, it becomes an organic thing now. It didn't used to be. You could you could call the shots. You could put out the statement. You could tell reporters to sit in a room and wait for somebody to come in and brief them. And they, they generally did. Now, State police, your lawyers, your communication people are monitoring social media immediately, and usually they're learning things like, okay, people are saying it's in this building, people are saying this happened, there is a crowd gathering on this street, so that you're responding to what's on social media. So, I mean, in in a real short version of this, 
call legal, get the lawyers in, because you're going to have to live and die with what you said in those first few hours, and that can happen in court. So get the lawyers in, same time, put somebody on social media, there to report minute by minute what's out there, what they're hearing, what people are saying, what people are reacting to. And third, get a holding statement out. Even if it doesn't say a whole hell of a lot, it's a lot better than having people say, we never heard from them for hours. And Jeremy, you mentioned at the beginning um, <coughs> several of the kind of sectors that we do work in. And I think one of the things that you've said before that we, we know as a team here is that depending on what your organization is, you're going to have a stereotype out there. If you are a, uh, a company that, that uh, works with uh, chemicals, uh, if you're a bank that, that deals with personal information, financial information, if you're a, um, a high-end uh, prep school, um, or if you're a nonprofit, you have a different stereotype. And that stereotype is going to either shorten your window with, with people's um, um, kind of sensitivity or, or compassion to, towards you as, as, a, uh, as a business or, um, or give you more time to react. And being honest with yourself because the reputation that you wish you had or that you project out there may not be what's inferred by the public. So it's not a time to say, well, this is, this is who we are and this is what they should think. You need to be honest, and even if it, if it doesn't feel good, to say, this is what people think of us. We need to respond in the lens of this is how people are thinking of us. Yeah, and, you know, honesty is another thing. Okay, call the lawyer, get somebody on social media, put together a holding statement. I would say in the first hour, too, you need people to make a commitment to be honest. That doesn't mean you come out and admit we have dumped 6 million tons of dioxin into the river. It means that you don't deny it if you think you may have. We, we have had clients who've wanted at the outset to essentially not tell the truth. Well, guess what? These things last for weeks. And you're dealing with very smart people. And even if you want to get beyond the ethics of it, eventually the worst thing that happens is the headline that says it turns out that they did, in fact, dump the dioxin. And so, they knew. And they knew. And if you can't deny it honestly, then then don't address it until you're certain what to say. I will say we have a colleague here who does a lot with prep schools where there are molestation scandals. And when he first broached this with a very prominent prep school, I was surprised. And it turned out to be a great idea. They knew from monitoring social media that there was a serial, good reason to believe there were serial molestations a couple of decades ago. And our colleague said, I think what we do is we go into the Boston Globe and we sit down and we say, we want anybody who went to our school in those years to come forward and talk to us about it because we are trying to get our hands around what actually happened here. It was an amazingly good response. And, they, you know, in a place like that, you have a significant audience is the alumni, the parents, the students. And I think almost universally, they thought that was the right thing to do. It's, it's action more than spin. Yeah, in, if you do the right case. thing, you get to be open and honest about it and feel good about it and usually have a better outcome. It's also, uh, you know, on that point, it's also knowing your constituency, knowing mm -hmm. your community and being familiar with, with what, um, uh, what their needs are, what their expectations of you are. Right. So you get the lawyer, you monitor social media, 
you put out a holding statement, you gather in a room the right people to be in the room, you remain honest, and then at a, at a certain point, you look at all your audiences and you say, who do we need to address right now that's going to be seeing this on social media or for the older demographic, picking it up in the Globe or the New York Times tomorrow because they need an email. So while you're doing that, simultaneously, a couple of people in the next room are putting together the facts for an email or a blast that is going to go to all those people who are going to see this because... They need to hear from you at least simultaneously with seeing this on TV, preferably before they see it on TV, hear it on the radio, read it on Twitter. They need to have your version of the facts. And I think a group that's often overlooked in that strategy session is actually your internal people. Often we take our own employees for granted and assume they're all set, we're gonna worry about everybody else. No, if you have hundreds or thousands of employees, first of all, every single one of them is a goodwill ambassador if, if you give them the tools to be. Do they have the right messaging? Do they know what's happening? Do they know what, you know, what you're saying to the press? Um, and also giving them the pat on the back and the validation that they deserve to be heard from you. Um, those people all have family and friends. So we talk about social media, but then there's just the viral component of people talking to people. And you potentially have thousands of people who can be carrying out the message that you want to be delivering that's often overlooked while we're so concerned first and foremost about the external. Absolutely. And if you don't, if you're not communicating internally, you do have the person who goes to Hannaford or stop and shop and is asked and says, how the hell would I know? They don't tell us anything. Not good. I mean, we have had that with hospitals where hospital staff has, hospital administration has carefully thought about the BBJ and the New Bedford Standard Times and, and the, the board. Cape Cod Times and the board <laughs> and the big donors and forgotten all about the nurses and doctors who the next day we'll see thousands of people who will say, did you really cut off the wrong leg? And they need to know what's going on. That, by the way, is a completely made-up example. <laughs> <laughs> that was, uh, you know, one going back to my days in the American Red Cross, one of, one of the uh, most fantastic parts about working there was it's uh, so volunteer-driven, um, all of the work, all of the response work. And volunteers are the, the best way to tell the story, to show the Red Cross in action. And so what we like to do was to empower those moments, empower those volunteers to, to kind of capture those moments of, of service delivery and, and uh, uh, relief work taking place. And for social media today, those those pictures and those videos are so powerful. Maybe not in the first couple of days where you're, you know, harking back to Merrimack Valley, Probably not the time to be um, worrying about that side of it, but bank those so that you have them when the time comes. Uh, people are once once people's appetite for the situation changes a little bit, you can start to push those out and show your hardworking volunteers, your hardworking staff doing their job, doing the right thing. Um, it's also good for morale, and we, you know, back to the internal. During times of crisis, morale often suffers. So yeah. building that back internally is another piece of building your reputation back to the general public. So, Jeremy, we, we this wasn't the case in the Merrimack Valley because it, it didn't happen, but 
um, if the CEO is to get on the phone with a reporter, it, what what is the advice that you give a CEO right prior to, to, to that kind of moment? Don't cry and don't threaten to sue them. <laughs> those, those may seem made up, however. Oh, and don't we, hang we up on them. We have some history with that. Don't hang don't up hang on Don't hang up. Don't force uh, one of us to run across the room and pull the plug from the camera and the tape recording. <laughs> I mean, you should you should practice before. You, you, you run through what the questions are going to be. You make sure you're not putting them on with, say, Joe Battenfeld of the Boston Herald right out of the box. You find somebody with a little bit more of a human touch than that <laughs> so that he feels warmer <laughs> about being able to do this. There is nothing. I mean, we all see this with people like CEOs who get off the phone afterwards and say, okay, I want to do this more. I, I feel better about this. Have them ready, prepped, willing to say, I don't know. And and willing to say we're really, you know, we had a case at the Big Dig where a young man was killed. And we had an employee go on the radio and start talking about the logistics of things like traffic and engineering. The first thing out of your mouth is, we feel horrible for the family. He has a young wife. We are trying to reach out to them now. We want to make sure that goes all right. I mean, show a human side. Be willing to say you're sorry um, and know your facts. If you don't, don't wing it. When you're asked if you spilled 8 million gallons of dioxin in the river, don't say, I think it might have been three, but we'll get back to you. So know your facts when you go on and be willing to sound human and compassionate. What's your message, really, too, underlying? What do you want to get out of this? Absolutely. What you can expect out of us in the next few weeks is crucial because people are waiting to hear information that they can actually use. I do want to say in some of these cases, and I think about this with Merrimack Valley, I know instances with hospitals where this has happened and with a college. Um, And UMass Dartmouth, I'll just say UMass Dartmouth had the Sarnia brothers there, one of the Sarnia brothers. We worked with them 24 hours a day. They had 80 reporters there at one point from around the world. At around the 72-hour point, we realized that, in fact, the school was going to come out looking really well, that the response of the students, the, the compassion, the candlelight vigil, the apology that this kid had come out of their place, the genuine heartfelt interviews of people in UMass administration about their concern for the victims, the school came out looking better than it had going in. And that can go either way in the first 72 hours. I think that's an interesting point. And it, um, it brings me to um, working with in higher ed today, but also in Massachusetts being the home to, to so many uh, global companies. We had a hurricane last year in, in Puerto Rico. We have one in the southeast uh, uh, earlier this week. And there are uh, schools that have uh, – uh, there are companies, there are schools that have students, that have uh, employees, that have family members in harm's way. And when you think about it, it's important, even if the disaster, the crisis is not necessarily here, to know that it still could have an impact here. Mm-hmm. And um, there's an opportunity always to, uh, to, to do something within your own community, within your own kind of employee population, your own student population, to uh, be a part, to contribute to something that may not be close by. And we have plenty of 
uh, colleges uh, here in Massachusetts that have relationships in Puerto Rico, uh, and uh, certainly um, during Hurricane Katrina, there were colleges in uh, the uh, Gulf Coast area that actually had to um, uh, send their students away, and and our uh, colleges here stepped up and 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 helped out in that effort. Well, I think we could probably talk about this for hours, and I think some of us would probably love to, uh, as we and and have in the past. But um, I think when I think quickly on what we've talked about, the biggest thing is preparation, right? It's 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 about what you do in the first couple of days, but it's really what you do in the weeks and months and years before a crisis uh, to prepare you and your organization for what's to come, so that you are prepared whenever that sort of crisis, whatever that may be to your organization, happens. Um, right. I mean, I, I, I could say it would be very self-serving, and I, would, I wouldn't let Tom down by not saying this, but you can pay a firm like us, and you, sh- and you should, to sit down with you for 48 hours and put together a crisis plan. And that should be short, usable, a viable document that you can pull out of a drawer and immediately go to. But honestly, there's a one-pager on that that everybody can have um, on their own that at least leaves you not fumbling around in the dark when something bad happens. Right. If you had a cyber breach, you you wouldn't hire someone that didn't have cyber experience to kind of help you out with it. When you have a, a, a crisis that involves communication and everyone, every crisis does, it's important to bring in the experts. And we happen to have those experts here. A few of them. <laughs> well, thanks, guys. For Two Minutes with Tom this week, Tom is joined by former Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley and one of the recipients of this year's Tip O'Neill Irish Diaspora Award. And they're coming all the way from Ireland, where Governor O'Malley was just named one of the recipients of this year's Tip O'Neill Irish Diaspora Award. Thank you, Tom and Governor O'Malley, for joining us. Hi, Diane. How are you? We're here with Martin O'Malley, the mayor, and the governor, and the presidential candidate. That's a whole. That's yes, a whole. and I'm honored to be here in the uh, land of the O'Neills. We yes. are here overlooking beautiful Lough Swilly, and I'm here with, uh, of course, one of the uh, two of the greatest O'Neills, with Tom and with Shelley. And it's awesome to be here accepting the Tip O'Neill Award from the Donegal County Council. Well, uh, first of all, congratulations! It's quite an honor. Hey, th- thank you. Yeah, it is, and it's it's. Uh, I'm here with my my two young sons, so it's it's awesome. Making it a family affair. Well, thank you for joining us this week. Uh, so we'll talk, I guess, a little bit about um, the award for, for our listeners who may not know. Um, the Tip O'Neill Irish Diaspora Award was established in 2012. It's presented each year to chosen members of the broad Irish diaspora in recognition of achievements in their chosen field and their interest and support for Ireland, Ireland and its diaspora. Um, and obviously, Tip O'Neill, uh, being our esteemed Tom O'Neill's father, it's uh, it's important to, to that whole family. So we're excited to have both of you. And uh, Tom, do you want to talk a little bit more about the award? Well, the award it has covered almost every segment of society. This year, we're honoring people who have been philanthropic. Uh, we're honoring folks who uh, have been in the sports world. And we're honoring people who have been in government and politics. And... Uh, 
and, and I must say, it's a, it's a well-rounded group of people, well-deserved of the Chip O'Neill Diaspora Award. And as you said, it's been going on now for seven years, and we're very proud of the people who have been honored over the years. And uh, Martin O'Malley is really, it, it's very special to have him here and, and be part of this, this whole event. Hey, Tommy, thank you. And if I could say, you know, I grew up in uh, the the Washington suburbs. Uh, yes, I was. I grew up in Maryland, but when I was growing up in my formative political years, by which in our family we define from like eighth grade forward, Jim uh, <laughs> O'Neill was a household name. You know, later on in my own experience in government in Maryland, we had to pass and get the votes to pass some really difficult things at the time whether it was marriage equality or driver's licenses for new American immigrants or, uh, you know, uh, repealing the death penalty. I mean, so many difficult things. I mean, really, uh, it's not hyperbole or or nostalgia that has me say that I would remember the great states people that I grew up watching. And and one of those was certainly Tip O'Neill, a person that a lot of Americans today are especially remembering fondly. Tommy, I don't know about you. You probably get this more than I do, but I often have people say, well, how are we going to get back to that time when Tip O'Neill and Reagan could fight with each other, but they wouldn't have to close down our government and they could still get something done and everybody could walk away from the table without feeling like the last partisan advantage had been pressed to embarrass the other person. So that's not a small thing. I mean, your own learned hand in Boston used to speak about the spirit of moderation, which is really the you know, the essence of our country, that ability to, to always find a way forward, whatever our individual perspectives. And look, gang, by spirit of moderation, I'm not saying that one should be illiberal or that we shouldn't be for universal health care or affordable college, but it is to realize that we're all in this together and that progress is a matter of steps, uh, not a matter of a destination. Um, so before we go, I, I've, I have to ask the sort of the question, Governor O'Malley, where are you going to put your award when you get home? Oh, my my uh, my hand of the great O'Neill. Where am I going to put the award? I'm probably going to put it on my desk, along with uh, along with my small statue of Cucullin and uh, <laughs> another great Irish hero. <laughs> I'm going to finish to... up by saying Martin O'Malley is one of my is one of my great friends, but he's also somebody I paid attention to and have a deep deep respect for. And when he talks about moderation and politics coming back to Washington, what real politics can be are the politics of a Martin O'Malley. All you have to do is watch his eight years as being the governor of Maryland and the eight years that he spent as mayor of Baltimore. And that's what America wants, and that's what America needs, that type of leadership. Well, thank you again to both of you for joining us all the way from Ireland. Thanks a lot. Good talking to you. Wish you were here. Me too. (laughs) Congratulations again. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air. Now that you've listened, be sure to subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, our website, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. But before we go, the team here at O'Neill & Associates is sending our friend, colleague, and OA on Air superfan, Nairi Aprahamian, the best of wishes. Congratulations to you and Greg as your wedding weekend quickly approaches. We'll talk to you next week.